0: So, imagine a person called Josh. Oh, that's my name. Very convenient. Anyway, Josh is the kind of middle-aged man who decided at some point five or maybe six years ago to start a podcast.
1: I started a podcast about that time.
0: And this Josh reviews papers on conspiracy theory theory, tearing into them and pronouncing judgment upon his intellectual peers.
1: Well, that's what we do now, in our our classic conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre sections.
0: Yeah, well, remember, this is a hypothetical situation.
1: Mm, Okay, it seems less hypothetical the more you describe it.
0: Anyway, this Josh hits a snag. He has to review a paper by someone he knows personally... And he usually reviews papers with that person.
1: You mean like your paper, when inferring to a conspiracy theory, might be the best explanation?
0: Well, let's say it's a hypothetical paper by a Blem Menteth called A Loose Bayesian Approach to Conspiracy Theory Explanations, just to make sure that this case remains in the realm of the speculative.
1: Okay.
0: Anyway, this Josh...
1: Hold on. Why does this hypothetical person like me still get to be called Josh, but the hypothetical person like you gets a new name?
0: I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Josh. You aren't Josh. Well, I mean, you are Josh. But you're not Josh Josh. Or is it Josh Josh? Anyway, uh where where was I? I don't know. I don't even know why we're talking about this. Actually, nor do I. Alright, let's try again. So there's this hypothetical person called Oliver.
1: Well he sounds like a right bastard.
0: Oh believe me, someone at Warwick really, really agrees with you.
1: Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Dentith. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Dentith sipping from a cup in Zhuhai, China. Not quite loudly enough for it to have been worth me pointing out that oh, that's sorry. what you're doing. Do you, that's what you're, do give you, it a
0: good slurp. You need a slurp.
1: I do oh that's the stuff
0: <laughs> oh sorry i actually did swallow that the wrong yeah. way so
1: get, get a good right, that's, aspiration that's what we're after
0: yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what we call radio drama folks mm. that's what we call radio drama
1: so when you're not choking to death on whatever fluids you're choosing to imbibe um you're gonna Which be is all fluids all the time mm. uh i understand you're off you're off keynoting again
0: I am. I'm giving a keynote this
1: weekend at an undergraduate
0: philosophy conference in Australasia, which is all very exciting because, I mean, I've given keynotes before to the point where I'm a bit blasé about giving keynotes now, but being invited to give the opening keynote to a conference of undergraduate students in Australasia is kind of exciting because it means, Josh, it means I am still hip and with it, and down with the kids.
1: Ah, I'm very definitely not, but good for you. So uh, when you say in Australasia, I assume it'll be remotely, you're not actually leaving the country?
0: No, no, No. so I'll be giving a Zoom presentation at just after lunchtime in my time zone, and 4.30pm in Eastern Australia. So, so AEDT, I believe, Eastern so, Australia.
1: So about six thirty New Zealand time, which yeah, actually yeah. isn't that relevant because I can't imagine I'll be tuning into it. But you never know. You, I mean, never you know, aren't,
0: you aren't an undergraduate in philosophy, Joshua. That's
1: that is unfortunately true. Yes, yes. I mean,
0: you, you finished your undergraduate, and then you surpassed yourself. I did. Yes. No. Postgraduate. I did a study.
1: postgraduate degree. I sure did. But anyway enough of my enough of my academic history um i i I suppose i have a i have a thing as well in my spare time as longer time listeners of this podcast will know i like to make make computer games for the youth of today to perform upon electronic devices
0: computer games
1: computer games
0: computer computer games Mm. good old my sex
1: yeah, and um, that's a band, by the way. Em is not referring to their own particular brand of sex, about which I don't wish to very speculate. Much
0: computer, computer games.
1: Mm. Um, no, so I've made, one, I've, I've um, experimented with a new tool that lets me make uh, mobile games for Android. So I've released an Android game, and the Play Store will accept any old crap. It turns out, and it's there. So if you were to go, if you, if you possess of an Android device. And were to go to the Google Play Store and search for Explodo Pool, all one word, you'll find my little game where you basically have a pool table and you tap on it, which causes explosions, sending the balls rocketing all around the table, in a way that I'm still actually not bored of yet. And I made the game, so I think I, I, I assume that means it's fun.
0: Now, for the majority of listeners, I have to ask, when is it coming to Apple iPhone?
1: Um, I don't know. My my wife has an Apple laptop. So it's possible because I'm pretty sure I can't produce, I'm pretty sure I need an Apple machine to actually produce something that will go onto the onto the Apple store. But I think I should be able to copy my project. So it's possible. It might happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but it might happen. Or you could just buy an Android.
0: I don't need two phones. No, but... but some days I wish I had none. Mm. Actually, that's not true. I do love my phone.
1: Mm. Why are we think, talking about phones? Uh, because I've written a game that can be played upon them, as long as it's an Android phone. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So anyway, well, there that's, we go.
1: that's that's my bit of plugging out of the way. Go look for Explodo Pool on the Play Store, and then like do, do do all the like and subscribe and give it five stars or whatever it is you do on there. So I'll get good reviews, and then
0: yeah, make sure you write a something. review. You yeah, definitely on, write a watch review. this game? Yeah. in the Apple iTunes Store for this podcast.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what you should do. Anyway, that's so, so, so that's your news and that's my news Is there any more news?
0: No, not really I think no. we should move straight on to the content Which is yet another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre And this is a little like the Sunstein and Vermeule paper A classic of the genre, not because I think it's good But because I think it's bad in a really interesting way
1: mm. Well, should we get straight into it then?
0: Indeed, let us engage our vices and engage in vice epistemology. Welcome to Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre.
1: Right, well, I don't know about you, but um, I have spent the last week trying to work up some sort of a Miami Vice reference um, in celebration of the fact that we're looking at the paper Vice Epistemology today. Um, and, and, and vice epistemology does sound like a kind of a, a more sexy sort of sort of exotic kind of epistemology. But I've had absolutely no success. I don't believe you've you've fared any better either. No,
0: I I did try my best to come up mm. with something that would work. Say with Warwick Vice, which is where the author of this piece is currently located, not in a place called Warwick Vice, located or a, a person place. called Warwick.
1: Warwick.
0: Yeah. And I'm you know, going Warwick Vice. Can we do some kind of British? version of a Mayahmi My Vice thing and frankly, no just nothing no, moved I, a... what we can guarantee is next week we'll have worked out exactly what we should have done mm, and yeah. then we'll talk about it at length next week by the time that it's really trite and we're over it but no, definitely we're just going to talk about bad epistemology, which is kind mm. of ironic because mm. the paper is called vice epistemology, and I think the person who wrote vice epistemology is suffering from some epistemic vices. But we'll get into
1: that. Mm. Yes. So the paper is called vice epistemology. It's by Kassim Kasam. Uh, it appeared in the Monist. 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 I believe. Monist. Uh, in April of 2016. Is that a philosophical journal?
0: It is. It's a very good philosophy journal yeah. originating in the UK.
1: Very good. Um, now, I, th- I might need you to take the lead on this one a bit, because I have to be honest, I didn't quite get why we're talking about this. Why well, I, I can see a bit. It's just that from what I can see, this is a paper about epistemology that does talk about conspiracy theories a bit, but it isn't a paper about the epistemology of conspiracy theories, which is largely what we've looked at before. So I might so, need you to, to, to take me by the hand a little and lead me through it a bit more.
0: So this is not the first time that Kasam has written on conspiracy theories. So back in the glory days of... Where is the date on this? It does not say... 2015. So back... Oh, back in the glory days of 2015, he wrote a paper for... Aeon, which is an online magazine that specializes in intellectual material called Bad Thinkers. And this was his discussion of why people believe conspiracy theories, because they are gullible. Now, Aeon is not a peer-reviewed publication. They're one of those publications where they approach an academic with and say, look, we want you to write on this particular thing, or the academic approaches the magazine and says, I want to write on this particular thing. And then you spend some time working with the editors to produce the final copy. So it's definitely not peer reviewed stuff, but it is, you know, it's carefully curated content. At around about the same time, Kassam appeared on the podcast Philosophy Bites, which is a UK podcast which interviews philosophers, and he talked about conspiracy theories and the fact they're ridden with vices on that particular podcast. So by the time that the piece in the monist came out, many of the particularists who were doing work on conspiracy theory theory... We were aware that Qassam had particular views on what is wrong with conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And so in Vice Epistemology, he's developing a bigger project in the epistemology of vices, which is kind of a companion to the talk of virtue epistemology, which is a kind of resurrection of Aristotelian virtue discussion with an epistemic rather than ethical lens. And he spends about a third of this paper talking about conspiracy theorists who suffer from conspiracist ideation in the manner of this person called Oliver. So to a large extent, we should probably really only focus most of our time and effort today on the section Mm. on Oliver, and why Oliver doesn't quite do what Kassam thinks Oliver should be doing for his argument. But before we get there, let's start as we usually do. Let's start with the abstract, which goes thusly. Vice epistemology is the philosophical study of the nature, identity, and epistemological significance of intellectual vices. Such vices include gullibility, dogmatism, prejudice, close mindedness, and negligence. These are intellectual character vices, that is, intellectual vices that are also character traits. I ask how the notion of an intellectual character vice should be understood, whether such vices exist, and how they might be epistemologically significant. The proposal is that intellectual character vices are intellectual character traits that impede effective and responsible inquiry. I argue that situationist critiques of virtue epistemology pose no significant threat to this proposal. Studies by social psychologists of belief in conspiracy theories suggest it is sometimes appropriate to explain questionable beliefs by reference to intellectual character vices neither regulative nor analytic epistemology has any good reason to question the epistemological significance of such vices.
1: Mm. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of this paper in and of itself, it seems to be his main thing is um, uh, proving, A, the existence of intellectual vices, and B, the worth of looking at them, And, and conspiracy theories are just the lens that he's choosing to do it through, but we'll see shortly i think how much he ends up talking about them so yeah i mean as you say there's an introductory section and there isn't really um much in it for us um so at the beginning he says suppose you think that human beings have character i say character trait but i have i know a lot of people do say tray because it is and it's, it's largely
0: rich. because I was trained by American anthropologists, and when American anthropologists talk about traits, they talk about trays. And so somehow I've continued the mm-hmm. anthropological stuff I learned at Uni.
1: Yes, I've I've heard it both ways. But let's I'll I'll say it my way and you say it your way, and it'll just keep things fun and interesting.
0: You say potato, I'll say potato. We both because say we potato. both say potato
1: because that's our accent. Yeah. Is. Potato, potato? Hmm. Tomato. Potato, yeah. Let's call the whole thing on. Indeed. Let's. Uh, And we'll start with, suppose you think that human beings have character traits, and that some of these traits are intellectual character traits, such as open-mindedness, thoroughness, attentiveness, dogmatism, carelessness, and gullibility. Some of these character traits, the first three, tend to get classified as intellectual virtues, and others, the last three, as intellectual vices. Such intellectual virtues and vices have attracted the attention of virtue epistemologists, though it's fair to say that virtue epistemologists have by and large been more interested in intellectual virtues than in intellectual vices. My aim here is to convince you, if you need convincing, that epistemologists should pay more attention to the intellectual vices. And so then he's basically, the the first bit is basically setting out what he intends to do for the rest of the paper, um, which we'll be going through. Um, Finishing up by saying, uh, I'll be suggesting that some of the factors that explain why intellectual character traits, such as closed-mindedness, gullibility and dogmatism, are intellectual vices, also help to explain why processes, such as wishful thinking and ignoring contrary evidence, are intellectual vices. But um, we'll, we'll jump straight then into section two, where he starts... What, then, is an intellectual character vice? Rather than tackling this question head on, I think it might help to look at a concrete example. And then, then we meet Oliver. D- do yes, we know now, if there's someone he doesn't like called Oliver, or is it really just a, a name chosen at random?
0: Yeah, so herein lies the, the issue, and we'll talk about this as, at length once we talk about what Oliver believes. But yes, it is interesting. We meet a hypothetical character called Oliver, which Kasam calls a concrete example. Now, to my mind, when you're talking about a concrete example, you're usually talking about a real example. And Mm. yet, in this case, we're given a hypothetical person with a whole bunch of hypothetical traits, and then we're told, well, look, if this hypothetical person with these hypothetical traits is a bad thinker, then ipso facto, all people like this person will be bad thinkers as well. And you might go, well, fair enough, but you haven't actually shown us that this person even exists. And yet you said they're a concrete example, which means that maybe you actually don't know what you're talking about. So, yes, let's meet Oliver. Oliver has an unhealthy obsession with 9-11. He spends much of his spare time reading about what he calls the 9-11 conspiracy. I'm going to interject to myself here. Uh, 9-11 was a conspiracy. It's just a matter of which conspiracy you think it was, whether it's the outside job of al-Qaeda or the inside job of, say, the American establishment. Whatever you believe about 9-11, it was a conspiracy. Uh, I think he actually means conspiracy theory there. Let me return back to Qassam. And Oliver regards himself as something of an expert in the field of 9-11 studies. He believes that, P, the 9-11 attacks were not carried out by al-Qaeda And the collapse of the World Trade Center towers on the 11th of September 2001 was caused by explosives planted in the buildings in advance by government agents rather than by aircraft impacts and the resulting fires. As far as Oliver is concerned, the collapse of the Twin Towers was an inside job and specifically the result of a controlled demolition. Might not be aware, but that sound effect is in the article.
1: Mm, yeah, I know it's quite amazing how he actually managed to spell it out phonetically. Right. So, so here's, here's this picture of this person called Oliver, who, yes, as you say, does appear to be completely imaginary um, and not at all a concrete example. Um, now, that uh, if, if there are any non-philosophers in our audience anymore, that, that, that P that you mentioned is as a thing where philosopher P usually stands for proposition. Um, And so that's that's sort of the the label you give to the proposition that a person believes. And so then he goes on to ask, one question you might ask about Oliver is, why does he believe that P, given that P is, I take it, not just false, but demonstrably false? Yeah. I kind of felt as soon as as I said that expected Curtis Hagen to burst through the wall like the Kool-Aid man in those American television commercials and say demonstrably false because he certainly didn't react well when Sunstein and Vermeule said that.
0: Are you aware that at the moment, of the Kool-Aid challenge?
1: No. Uh, I hope it has nothing to do with the Jim Jones cult.
0: Well, yes, uh, many, many people have made that joke. So apparently in Idaho, particularly in Boise at the moment, due to the pandemic, there are a lot of houses that are being renovated. And so people are putting up plastic sheets around the... Properties as they do renovation inside So people are doing the Kool-Aid Challenge of bursting through The plastic sheets like the Kool-Aid Man in that ad that Neither of us have ever seen mm. because We don't live in America.
1: No, nevertheless It's such a part of American Popular culture and therefore worldwide popular Culture that we all know about it And a part of the critic mm. Oh, exactly, just about I think, I think pretty much every cartoon Out of America by this time Anyway. So so yes, the, this paper I um, mean as as you've probably worked out by now just simply takes it as read that 9/11 truth conspiracy theories are just plain nonsense, completely false. Um and kind of by extension that all the sorts of conspiracy theories that we're talking about are uh complete nonsense and completely false. But he uh, so at this point you sort of say, okay, so why does Oliver believe this? Well, if you ask him, he'll give a whole lot of reasons. He'll he'll say, um, you know, he'll he'll say jet fuel can't melt steel beams. He'll he'll talk about, you know, the, the no buildings ever collapsed by fire and blah, 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 blah. And um if you say, why do you believe that? And then he'll say, oh, well, I've I've you know, I've read gone to these websites, I've read these articles and so on and so on and so forth. And he, he, he'll He'll have a reason in terms of evidence and explanation for everything, but that uh, as he says that, that, that only gets you so far and um, Kasam sort of wants to say what he's saying is wrong but but, but but why he's wrong we possibly can't get to by simply asking like he, he's not going to trip himself up by not being able to provide evidence that's unsatisfactory to himself. Um, So we need to look elsewhere to these these character traits, I guess, is what he's getting at.
0: Yeah, and there's something really interesting about this, because as you point out, Kassam admits that Oliver, who we have to remember, is a made-up person, presumably has arguments and reasons for believing the conspiracy theories that he does. So later on in the article, it turns out that Oliver isn't just a 9-11 truther. He also denies the thesis that HIV causes AIDS and also believes that the moon landings were hoax. So he's not just a conspiracy theorist around 9 11. He's a conspiracy theorist around a lot of things. He's an archetypical conspiracy theorist, at least in Kassam's view. But he seems to go, Kassam that is, that Oliver does seem to be able to provide reasons and arguments for the views that he has. But as you also point out, Kasem has said these are demonstrably false theories. So obviously Oliver can't believe them on the basis of the evidence. There must be something intellectual about his character, which gives us a better explanation as to why Oliver believes the things he does.
1: Mm. So yes, um, Kassam says, It's hard to get away from the feeling that merely outlining Oliver's defective reasons for believing that P is only scratching the surface. There's still a clear sense in which, despite knowing his reasons, we still haven't satisfactorily explained why Oliver believes that P. Uh, and then moving down a bit, a different kind of explanation is called for. And this creates an opening for the notion of an intellectual vice. Oliver explains his beliefs by reference to his reasons, but we might prefer an explanation in terms of his character, including his intellectual character. And so, some want to say that Oliver believes in these, these false conspiracy theories. Really the reason why he believes in them is because of his intellectual vices, because he's gullible, because he's cynical, and because he's prejudiced in his thinking.
0: But what's problematic here from the point of a philosophical argument is that Kassem defines Oliver who has bad reasons to think 9-11 was an inside job. So prima facie, Oliver is just wrong. So Oliver can't be used as the conclusion of an argument which says conspiracy theorists have intellectual vices because built into the premise Oliver himself is the idea that he never has good reasons to believe those theories in the first place. This is literally a case of begging the question.
1: Mm. And it does kind of seem, I mean, it does kind of seem like he's saying evidence doesn't matter. Because I, I, I feel like you could do this the opposite direction. Someone who does believe in the official theory, which I assume Kasan believes, um, is completely correct. Uh, would also be able to appeal to a whole bunch of, of evidence for it, which certainly wouldn't convince Oliver, say. Um, so it, it it kind of feels like, you know, and so there you can say, oh, but this, he's right because the person who believes the official theory is right because of their intellectual virtues in coming to it. But then, of course, you can, there are situations where people have been called crazy conspiracy theorists, who then turned out to be right. You know, uh, the the example you've talked about plenty in the past is anyone who said the NSA is spying on all our communications prior to Edward Snowden would have been called a tinfoil hat weirdo, and then Snowden releases all of his stuff and realise, oh, actually, that that was kind of true all along. So was this person intellectually virtuous or intellectually vicious at all?
0: Well, it's... Let's play a game, to quote the Saw franchise. And actually, I'm, I'm borrowing this from a paper that we're going to look at in the future. So this is not my idea. This is actually the idea of another philosopher, and I'm simply getting in first in our conspiracy theory masterpiece theater. So it seems like I'm much cleverer than I am. Here is a slice of Cassam's paper where he talks about Oliver. And I'm going to read it in the first sense with Oliver as the subject, and then I'm going to read the same piece with Kassam as the subject. So, the Oliver case. Oliver is certainly an inquirer. He tries in his own way to find things out and to extend his knowledge by carrying out investigations directed at answering certain questions. His questions include who was responsible for the 9-11 attacks, who planned the attacks, and why were they carried out? Could aircraft impacts and resulting fires have brought down the Twin Towers? If not, what actually caused him to collapse? And so on. His investigations are aimed at answering these questions, and his methods include searching the web, reading books about 9-11, and studying the video footage of the planes flying into the WTC towers. So far, so good. But his investigations are blighted by his intellectual vices. Now, let's read that out about Kassam. Kassam is certainly an inquirer. He tries in his own way to find things out and to extend his knowledge by carrying out investigations directed at answering certain questions. Cassam's questions include who was responsible for the 9-11 attacks? Who planned the attacks and why were they carried out? Could aircraft impacts and the resulting fires have brought down the Twin Towers? If not, what actually caused them to collapse? And so on. Cassam's investigations are aimed at answering these questions and his methods include searching the web, reading books about 9/11 and studying video footage of the planes flying into the WTC towers so far so good but Cassam's investigations are blighted by his intellectual vices
1: mm. kind of feels like you could say that about anyone or 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 even you could turn it around and say uh, you know but but um fortunately for Cassam his efforts were were bolstered by his intellectual virtues but now we're just turning it into a, we're just shifting the grounds as to um, how to know which of them is right and which is wrong. It's still. Yeah, and so this is the
0: worry here that we've got goalpost shifting going on here. That because Kassam has defined Oliver as being irrational and believing demonstrably false theories, of course it turns out any investigation he does, which is directed in the wrong direction is going to be something blighted by an intellectual vice. But that's not the product of an argument that is built into the definition of who Oliver, the hypothetical conspiracy theorist, turns out to be. In the same respect, you might go, well, the fact that you are saying that Oliver is demonstrably wrong and that we should just ignore the arguments and evidence he puts forward for his theory means that you're engaging in an intellectual vice of dogmatism. You're being dogmatic, about Oliver being wrong rather than going, well, actually, let's look at what Oliver has to say and analyse whether his arguments are any good. But no, rather than do that, we say, oh, Oliver's got the wrong kind of character, and thus he can't possibly be correct in this case, because his character uh, vices mean that we should just dismiss him in cases like this. And that seems like the intellectual vice of being dogmatic.
1: Mm. So, at this point, he's sort of... Um And again, this is why I'm a little bit unsure about looking into this paper, because he'll talk about conspiracy theories, but then he'll go into what, to me, seems to be the main point of the paper, which is that um, intellectual vices are a real thing and we should look at them more seriously. He... um, Uh, Quotes uh, Linda Zagzebski Who wrote Virtues of the Mind Where she lists a whole bunch of epistemic vices um, Intellectual pride, negligence, idleness Cowardice, conformity, carelessness, rigidity Prejudice, wishful thinking Closed-mindedness, insensitivity to detail Obtuseness and lack of thoroughness um, To which Kassam suggests We could very easily add gullibility And cynicism And indeed possibly dogmatism So I'm not quite sure why
0: cynicism Is an intellectual vice there I, think, I, it's mean, I think, cynicism I think certainly
1: can be yeah, yeah but as the opposite of yeah, gullibility yeah. you can go too far the other way but, but a healthy cynicism needn't yes. be
0: advice yeah. precisely i mean being gullible is by and large wrong although i suppose you might also go it might be useful political virtue to have a certain amount of gullibility in the population to allow the population to be easy to but at the same time, yeah, cynicism doesn't seem like it's necessarily a vice, unless, as you say, it's excessive cynicism.
1: Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I suppose you have trustworthiness as a virtue and then gullibility is the vice of being too trusting. So I think, yeah, there's, there's something... There's the virtue which is being a bit cynical and the vice which is being too cynical. I think we've, there, there must be a word. There must be a word we're missing that would go there. But anyway, that's not... That's not overly relevant to the, the point of the paper, at least. Um, he talks about, um, oh, he has the Galileo and Shmelileo, which I do, I, I like to say, not quite sure what he's getting in about that. He's uh, um, talking about you have a, a Galileo who's um, not so good at attaining the truth, but Shmelileo is... Closed-minded, lazy, and negligent, but nevertheless is better at uh, getting getting at the truth. I think he wants to say that intellectual virtues don't guarantee that you'll arrive right, that, that that everything you say is true, and that a, 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 an intellectually vicious person is guaranteed to be wrong about everything. I think that's what Would he was getting at with that. Bit.
0: And I mean, one of the Standard criticisms against virtue epistemology, which probably also relates to vice epistemology, is often often it seems to be a kind of a kind of a kind of backporting. So you actually already work out whether a view is good or bad, warranted or unwarranted to believe. And you go, oh well. The people who believe the right things have the right kind of epistemic virtues. And the people who believe the wrong things have, you know, epistemic vices. And the criticism goes, yeah, but you've already done the epistemology to work out whether the views are good or bad, and then you talk about whether, uh, whether people have the vices or the virtues to believe them afterwards, which seems that that's something you do after the fact, not something that leads you towards that fact. And so there's a piece in the article where Kassam goes, even if you were dismissive of conspiracist websites, as Oliver is of the report of the 9-11 Commission, you aren't in the same boat as Oliver, epistemologically speaking. The difference is that you are giving conspiracy sources precisely the credit they rationally deserve, whereas Oliver's sense of what deserves epistemic credit and what does not is totally skewed. And that, once again, seems to be a case of, look, I've done some research here, and I know that these websites are good, and the ones that Oliver refers to, Oliver the hypothetical example, once again, are bad, which means that I've got the intellectual virtues because I've done the work. And you end up going, yeah, but once again, that seems to be something you're doing after the fact of having done the epistemology of looking at the evidence here.
1: Mm. And yes, I think the Galileo-Shmelileo bit was where he says... um my, my inquiry-based approach is, broadly speaking, a form of epistemic consequentialism, but not standard epistemic consequentialism. The standard consequentialist position in this area says that character virtues are truth-conducive character traits, while character vices are truth-obstructive. The former reliably produce true beliefs, the latter reliably produce false beliefs. On my account, intellectual verses and vices are still delineated as such by reference to their consequences, but the consequences that matter are consequences for effective and responsible inquiry, Rather than the consequences for the ratio Of true to false beliefs So yeah he does He's Again yeah Wanting to say that means that you get The situation that you just In a second ago where You end up just sort of saying well this person's Intellectually virtuous so their line of inquiry Is good and this person isn't And so their inquiry is bad But I still don't Have any sense for why That actually is other than he says so
0: Yes and once again Oliver, for a concrete example, is fictional.
1: Mm. Now, I th- I believe in section three, um, he does he does he, he acknowledges this and and gets into the psychological literature. He says he, he starts by talking about um, the idea that skeptics of this this kind of um, epistemology that he's putting forward. Would argue against the existence of intellectual character, character traits and and um, go for a more situationist approach. Um, he says what writers in this tradition criticise is the tendency to exaggerate the extent to which such traits can be used to explain and predict how people will behave in new situations, while failing to recognise the importance of situational factors in affecting behaviour. This is the so-called fundamental attribution error. And one question is whether virtue epistemology makes a version of this error in accounting in its account of epistemic conduct, which. Where we think. Oh, I, I assume Steve Clark has something to say about this as well. That was his thing—the fundamental attribution error and situational versus dispositional stuff. I don't know. How, I, it, you you compared this to the Sunstein and Vermeule paper, which got has got a lot of pushback from people. Is this one that multiple people have criticised?
0: Steve Clark has some forthcoming stuff on conspiracy theory, but he had a kind of fellow period where he wrote some papers didn't do any work in the field is now coming back to it. So I'm not entirely sure what Steve thinks about Kassam's work, but I'm sure we'll find out in print very soon.
1: Hmm. Um, so in the paper, he talks about th- these questions around um, uh, situationism and and whether you should go for that or whether, whether it's okay to believe in these um, intellectual uh, virtues and vices. Um, And at one point, he does say, um, as far as epistemic situationism is concerned, the merits of situationism and vice epistemology have to be sealed empirically by looking at actual cases of questionable beliefs and trying to work out why real people have such beliefs. What we should be trying to understand, that is to say, is the epistemic conduct of real-world Olivers rather than fictional Olivers. Um, And then he basically basically says, uh, and lucky for us, there's a whole bunch of psychological literature on this. Um, and and in honor in honor of Oliver, um, or, you know, does the empirical evidence support vice epistemology, situationism, or some mi- mixture of the two? In honor of Oliver, I will concentrate on the psychological literature on conspiracist beliefs. Um, which so, so again this 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 whole section from then on really did seem to be looking at what do psychologists say about people who believe in conspiracy theories, which does seem to be very much. Uh, generalist and take it as as read that conspiracy theories are irrational. I don't know if they're doing a thing, a little bit like, um, possibly what 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 Brian Keely did with the um, uh, unwarranted uh, sorry unwarranted mature conspiracy theory stuff, where they're without explicitly saying so they've just identified, identified a subset of conspiracies as the wacky ones, the ones that are obviously false, and that's what they're talking about now. Um, and or, or whether they do actually mean that Just yeah, the, the, these conspiracy theorists, they're just all nonsense or not. I mean, even if they do, uh, are do mean the former, that's still a problem because they haven't given anything, any, any indication of how you might work out what's a good one and what's an obviously false one. But, um, yes, yeah, so from, from here on, it's all, it all certainly seems very very generalist and and fairly just sort of dismissive, I guess, of conspiracy. Yes, theories. and I mean this
0: is a recurrent criticism I've had of a large amount of the psychological literature on conspiracy theory, is that some some psychologists just define conspiracy theories as being prima facie false. There aren't that many who make that explicit claim in part because they're obviously wrong, because if you show one example of a conspiracy theory that turned out to be warranted, then they're in a bit of trouble, If they say, but all such things are irrational to believe. Then there are the ones who go, well, they're mostly irrational to believe. And that's kind of where Cassarm is getting his work from. The psychologists go, well, you know, by and large, conspiracy theories are mad, bad, and dangerous. Sure, Sometimes conspiracies turn out to have occurred, but by and large, if it's labeled as being a conspiracy theory, it must be mad, bad, and dangerous to believe. And of course, that suffers from the labeling issue, which is, yes, the label conspiracy theory is often used, particularly by people in positions of power, to refer to bad theories they don't like. And sometimes those bad theories they don't like are indeed false. But occasionally, people label things as conspiracy theories, even though they turn out to be warranted, a la Bush and Blair talking about conspiracy theories about the real rationale for the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. So, Kassam is using work which defines belief in conspiracy theories as prima facie bad. So he's not really, he's he's finding evidence to fit his hypothesis rather than finding evidence that supports his hypothesis.
1: Mm. But yeah, ne- nevertheless, th- this was the section where it really kind of lost me, to be honest, um, because here he really is trying, he, all the argumentation here seems to be that Vice epistemology is is a good idea, and that looking at intellectual vices is good and what have you and it, it just so happens that he's chosen to talk about conspiracy theories um in a in a dodgy questionable way um to illustrate his point but is there you suggested before that this should possibly be seen in the context of him being disparaging of specifically towards conspiracy theories in his earlier work well yeah, I mean
0: to One of the problems is, and we'll get to this in a later episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, is that his subsequent work has given up on a character-based assassination. I meant to say assessment, but assassination seems to work just as well, of conspiracy theorists. And instead he uses a political lens instead to say that, look, conspiracy theories are examples of right-wing propaganda, and that's the reason why we should be sceptical of them. An argument, I think, which is just as bad as the one he's Mm. presenting here, but for completely different reasons. But... This is all published work, and it's going to see a lot of criticism in subsequent papers, so we need to kind of look at it now to make sense of the fact that people will be talking about Kasam an awful lot in the future. And also for the sheer fact that the latter part of the paper kind of relies on us agreeing with the case study he produces of Oliver the conspiracy theorist, because this is the example he uses to launch his entire boat – on why we should take Oliver's gullibility to be a central vice we need to be concerned of and add it to our lexicon of vices in our vice epistemology. But if we think that Kassam's case study is fundamentally flawed, in part because, as a concrete example, it's made up and it's packed in, so you're not just 9-11 truther, Oliver is also an HIV-causes-AIDS-denier, and, you know, he's a moon-landing bird, he probably believes that the Earth is flat and things like that. Kassam has kind of over-egged or over-salted the pot, and this is a problem here, because if you end up going, yeah, but your case example is bad, doesn't really support the conclusions you're trying to argue for here. It really does seem that he's he's using this to independently show... That the social psychologists are right, but it looks when you actually drill down into it, like he's assumed that they're right, and he's rigged a case study in the form of o- Oliver to provide support for that particular project.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the opposite of some of the papers we've looked at before, where I I, I agree with the general conclusion, but I'm not so um, wasn't so sure about how they got there. And this one, I definitely disagree with what he's saying. But it felt a little bit like um, the, the, having read only this paper and not being familiar with anything else he said. The negative reaction to it kind of felt a bit like just the fact that he was stepping on people's toes. That he was talking about, you know, t- t- he had ventured into our region and didn't really know what he was talking about. He should go stick in his lane, um, which isn't. Um, the same as, uh, as a different kind of a criticism. I mean, certainly when we get to the conclusion, we um, he, he finishes up by saying, to sum up, I've argued that intellectual vices are clearly of epistemological interest if you conceive of epistemology as inquiry epistemology. The case for analytic epistemology to be interested in intellectual vices is less strong, but can still be made. My own sympathies are very much with inquiry epistemology, and for my purposes the important point is that the epistemological significance of intellectual vices is not, or should not, be in question as far as inquiry epistemology is concerned. The interesting question is not whether, if intellectual vices exist, epistemology should be interested in them, should, but whether such vices exist as genuine character traits which affect our inquiries. My contention in this paper has been that they do. With scepticism about intellectual character out of the way, vice epistemology can get down to the serious business of identifying and studying specific intellectual vices. Vice epistemology is the epistemology of real human beings, and a failure to engage with the intellectual vices by which our cognitive lives are blighted represents a failure to engage with the human epistemological predicament. Um, A conclusion which I noticed does not mention conspiracies or conspiracy theories at all. Initially, I said neither does the abstract, but then I look back and he no, oh, he does actually say at the end of it, "That's that's the example I'm going to be using. So now, I, I have a, I have kind of a theory about realize. this.
0: Mm. My theory about this is the conspiracy theory stuff was added in to the article to, to use the academic terminology, sex it up. So I think he needed an example that would be, you know, of pith and moment. But, oh, actually, conspiracy theories are all the rage at the moment. I'll talk about conspiracy theorists. So he put in the example. And I just don't think it's a very well thought through example. And indeed, he kind of has to make the example as extreme as possible. So, as hypothetical conspiracy theorists, all. Oliver believes an awful lot of interesting conspiracy theories. And he kind of uses it, oh everyone's going to agree with me that conspiracy theories are mad, bad, and dangerous. And then he got the pushback against it where people are going, I don't think you're actually characterizing conspiracy theory belief particularly well here. So it is interesting that he he moves away from this character-based assessment. In subsequent work Although if we end up reading the book he wrote Which is quite short it's well Within the remit of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre To cover that book He's very defensive About the criticism he got Very, mm. very defensive
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I think I'll, I'll take your word for it that in context There's a bit more significance to it I mean, It feels like he still could have Made all the same points and reached the same Conclusion and had the same argument with a completely different example, say, I don't know, religious extremism or something. And then we wouldn't be talking about it at all. And he might have pissed off a whole bunch of theists or something instead.
0: Yeah, because I mean I'm I'm not necessarily again virtue or vice epistemology as an approach. I mean there are there are some legit criticisms of the virtue vice epistemological stance, some of which we've talked about here. I mean there's a section where Kassam is replying to Mark Alfano, who takes a much more situationalist idea about how we should talk about these things. So I mean, there's a there's a big debate in epistemology as to whether virtue epistemology and now the new field of vice epistemology is good or bad. But I'm not necessarily against it. I think there is something interesting about character traits with respect to our epistemic status. And I suspect I do this because I'm I'm actually very sympathetic towards virtue ethics. And the idea that, you know, you train the child through inculcation of virtue. I think that's actually how we bring children up. And I think that also explains how our ethics works in a lot of day-to-day activities. Historically, virtue ethics has had an awful lot of criticism because it's a really great idea. Actually cashing out how it works, incredibly difficult. I think the same thing is true with virtue epistemology as well, but I'm not again it. I keep repeating that. I'm not again the idea of a virtue or vice epistemology. I just don't think this paper is very good.
1: No, no, I I would definitely agree there. And yes, if, as you say, it's going to get referred to a lot, then it's a good thing that we've looked at it now. Yes, because not not every masterpiece
0: is a great paper. Mm. Sometimes they're important which is why they're a masterpiece, but that doesn't mean it's an endorsement when we put it into our list.
1: Indeed. So I think that's all we need to say about Vice Epistemology for now, until such time as we come up with a decent, some sort of a Miami Vice kind of a reference. Which of us would be Crockett and which would be Tubbs? Because whoever's in Tubbs has to do blackface and will immediately get cancelled and we'll have to kill the podcast. So.
0: Right. So have you ever watched the... It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode where they make a new Lethal Weapon film. I have not. So in that, and because It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia likes to tackle complex problems like this, and actually usually tackles them quite well. Because the Lethal Weapon films, of course, have a Caucasian and African-American co-leads, And the two characters in the show who want to be the stars are both Caucasian. They had to keep on swapping between which one's Mel Gibson and which one is is Danny Glover. And so one of them decides to do Danny Glover in blackface and the other, when they're playing the Danny Glover character, does it in black voice. And they have huge debates in the episode itself as to which is actually a a worse racist character. Car- caricature putting on blackface or putting on black voice mm. and it's actually quite an interesting debate because you're not meant to think there's a right answer you meant to think they're both horrifically wrong but it's interesting seeing people debating the merits of whether they are slightly less racist in the caricature than the other person also i see that mel gibson is going to direct another let- let- lethal weapon film
1: so I hear,
0: yes. He's the reason why I won't be watching the John Wick TV series.
1: i am in that as well.
0: Yeah, and I have decided I'm just not going to watch anything that Mel Gibson has earned. So I, I'm sorry the John Wick TV series is dead to me.
1: I'm a little bit over John Wick, to be honest. Um, I did. I did like the analysis of it that says it's a fairy story. Like people say, it's it's an action film. It's a it's a crime film. But then people said, no, it, it's it's closest to a fairy story. John John Wick is is one of the fairy folk. He lives in this this other world that seems completely invisible to the rest of us. He's paid in gold coins. He can be bound by a blood pact uh the, the all the all the elements of it make it more like uh a character from a fairy tale than any other any other genre. Um and uh i I I don't really need any more of it to be honest.
0: And like like most decent fairy tales, it's probably going to end quite horrifically. I know that the the director of the la- latest set of films is going, you you do realize it's not going the final film will not end well for John Wick. I mean it's not a world you can you can just walk away from. He's probably going to
1: die. Mm. Well, I mean, other people have talked about the whole thing as being sort of a metaphor for alcoholism or some other sort of addiction, where, as I point it, so every every decision John Wick makes is the wrong one. Everything he does just makes his life worse and and compl- more complicated and, and and leads to more suffering for him. So, anyway.
0: Welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the John John Wick Series of Films. Mm.
1: Yes, so our descent into pop culture analysis means that we've reached the end of the episode. Um, So before we wrap things up here, of course, we have to introduce the bonus episode that we'll be recording immediately after we stop this one. We've got Alex Jones updates. We've got Salvatore Mundi updates. We've got COVID-19 stuff. Um, It'll be a laugh riot, I'm sure.
0: Probably not, but
1: yeah, let's try and it It'll make be a it thing, up. yes. So anyway, if you want to hear about Alex Jones, Salvatore Mundi, and more COVID-19 stuff, and you're a patron, then you're in luck. That's, what you're, that's, that's what's going to be showing up in your podcast feed immediately after this episode. Um, if you'd like to become a patron, just go to patreon.com and search for The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. And uh, that, I believe, is all we need to say for this week.
0: Indeed. I think it's only one thing to say to close out this episode.
1: Well, the only thing I can possibly think of would be goodbye, Salvador Mundi. All the lonely people. Anyway, goodbye, Regine, everybody.
0: The podcasters' guide to the conspiracy is Josh Edison and me, Doctor M R X Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, Soylent Green is meeples.